Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today's episode is a very special one. I had a chance to chat with nine members of the biological collections community about biodiversity infrastructure and its role in the present COVID-19 era, both as a means of enabling ongoing education and research and also potentially helping detect and mitigate future threats to human well-being. These topics and others are covered in two bioscience publications, an editorial and a viewpoint, that are published in conjunction with this episode today. There are links to those in the show notes. And to keep the intro short, I've placed the guest info in the show notes too, and today's guests introduce themselves throughout the show. And along the way, you might hear some familiar voices, and that's because this episode builds on an earlier discussion of the extended specimen network, and I recommend that episode to those who'd like to learn more about biodiversity infrastructure. But for now, let's go to the discussion. All right, so first of all, uh, thank you all very much for joining me today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yep. Nice to Glad be to here. Be here. Okay, to get us started, I was hoping we could talk about collections in the modern sense, just kind of generally. So it's probably a myth that's you know too old to even bother dispelling almost. But you know we're not necessarily talking about just uh, you know uh, an insect pinned to an index card uh, or you know an old bone stuffed away in some musty old closet somewhere in the basement of a museum. Um, but what what kinds of things are we talking about? Well, I'll start and just say that that actually we are talking about bones in a drawer and and pinned insects and and the amazing thing is that that with those specimens is all this other information and one of the things we've got the capacity to do now is take advantage of new technology with respect to making those kinds of data uh, enhanced and more readily available in all kinds of different ways and that includes research and for just basically data access. And so that's the big thing that we're trying to do right now. Yeah, and I uh, I don't know about bones in a drawer tucked away in a basement somewhere. I think that's a, a mischaracterization of what collections are. Collections are um, biodiversity in a museum that allows for the study of biodiversity almost as well as the study of biodiversity in nature itself. So from that perspective, I think it's an old-fashioned thought that somehow these are dusty things all stored away somewhere never to be seen again because that's certainly not what modern biodiversity science want to do. They want to see these specimens in collections be used for very active research and challenge grand challenge questions for today's science. And, and collections aren't old either. That's another myth that these are all old things. Hundreds of thousands of new collections are made every year and deposited collections of bones for sure, for, of, uh, of butterflies, but also tissues and hair and um, eggshells, a whole host of things. I always like to mention here, it's also the expertise. So not only do you have this network of data, but you have this network of experts that have really led the way in the idea of open and collaborative science, mm -hmm. because we've always been working globally. We've always been sharing this information because a lot of the biodiversity we need to look at at much bigger scales or time frames. And that's what sort of the collections kind of pull together by creating this network. And I'd like to add that collections today are not isolated um, from one institution to another, but they're connected globally because they're digitally connected. So we have resources around the world that we can access through digitized um, specimen information, we have images, we have all sorts of information that we can share with people everywhere. All we need is an internet connection and we can tap into the vast resources of our global collections. Okay, perfect. I think that is an excellent overview. But moving on, you know, I think uh, we might as well come right to one of the topics of, you know, our discussion today. Uh, and that is the role of collections, um, you know, and, and things like the extended specimen network in helping us identify, you know, and mitigate future disease threats and, you know, how this biodiversity information might play into that sort of project. I'll just leave it at that and leave it open and collect your thoughts. And as we do that, why don't you folks uh, go ahead and um, state your names so that our listeners will have a chance to know who's speaking. I'm John Bates, and I'm a 
the pre current president of the Natural Science Collections Alliance, and I'm also a curator of birds and head of life sciences at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. And you know what I'd say with respect to this current COVID situation is that it illustrates just how important science is in the sense that the minute that this virus started uh, being noticed in China, the first thing someone did was sequence its genome. And then the next thing they did was start asking questions about where the where it came from and what it was related to, and viruses are, are are parasitic in the sense that they live in hosts. And so one of the first things that came up was what kind of hosts were this was this particular virus living in, and this is information that 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 relies on understanding biodiversity. And this particular case actually has some very interesting questions associated with it in terms of whether it came from things like a pangolin or different types of bats. And each one of those questions has really basic biodiversity aspects to it that can be best answered by some of the material that we have in our collections. This is Pam Soltis. I'm a curator in the Florida Museum of Natural History at the University of Florida. And I'm part of the IDIG Bio Project. And I think that um, digitized collections give us access to so much information worldwide that we can use to help address a whole range of um, biodiversity-related societal problems and challenges that we're facing this century. So these range in topics from how species will be responding to climate change to how we might be able to predict um, the next uh, global um, disease outbreak or pandemic. So I think there's a lot of information in our collections that just um, allows us to, first of all, uh, pair species together um, with their pathogens. Give, the collections give us information on natural distributions of um, pathogens and their hosts. And we have access to genetic resources that are um, that are also coupled to these distributional climate and host specimen information. So if we actually have all of this information linked tightly together through informatics uh, mechanisms, we can start to pair up information about where a virus has been detected, what its hosts are, where we might go to find out more information about the distributions of those hosts, what other interacting species occur with the hosts, how we can get genetic information on those hosts and ultimately then on additional pathogens. So we have this whole broad range of information that's all available through connected information about um, different aspects of collections. I agree 100% with that, Pamela. And I, I think that um, when I'm, I'm Gil Nelson, and I'm the director of IDIG Bio at the Florida Museum of Natural History at the University of Florida. And our job is to digitize specimens and make data available, mobilize it so that it is stored in aggregators and available to researchers across the globe. And when we first started this, we talked about making it easier for people to get to specimens without having to travel all around the country to find the specimens that they wanted to study and also run the risk of missing specimens because they don't have the finances or resources to make every museum where, where certain specimens might be held. And so I think what Pam just said is to me the most exciting part and that is the ability now, forget about the travel geographically, now we can begin to combine these data together in new ways, find new relationships all across collections, domains, vertebrates, um, invertebrates, viruses, fungi, and begin to see these relationships without having to actually, uh, I don't think we could do that if we didn't have the ability to digitally provide data sources to folks to look for relationships. This is Barbara Tears from the New York Botanical Garden. Just to point out that 
diseases in um, in humans is in animals is the topic of the moment but equally important are the um, ideas uh, or the, the possibility of diseases that could destroy major crop plants could destroy our food or our other important products and also collections tell us a lot about the how species become invasive and how an outside species can, can move in and force out natural ecosystems and also things like um, the right kind of grass for livestock to eat and so forth. Yeah, and I'll just, just add to that that it, it's important to remember that, that basically all these disease-related uh, things like bacteria and uh, viruses have been co-evolving with the biodiversity that's out there for millions of years. And so a lot of times they may have already come up with solutions that we're just now beginning to get the tools to even study. And so those, may, those kinds of studies may provide answers for us that we haven't even thought of yet. And so this is where being able to go back to the specimen and understand exactly what the relationship is becomes really important. I think this is where some of our genetic resources come into play as well. So there are some excellent examples of um, natural history collections that have really extensive um, genetic resources as well. And it's possible to um, analyze this uh, host specimen for any sorts of pathogens that might be um, um, still present in um, preserved tissues from that specimen. And so this gives us a chance to look at the distributions of pathogens on spatial and temporal scales, as well as interspecific um, host relationships. And this is all information that could be used perhaps to understand the source of a disease, the transmission dynamics of that disease, and potentially even possibilities for um, developing vaccines. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. So, um, you know, just harping on the on the disease example for a moment, you know, this would be a case in which if you had everything readily, you know, um, digitized and you had and sequenced, of course, and people start showing up in an ER uh, with a disease you haven't seen before, with symptoms you haven't seen before, you go through the the first step as John described of um, sequencing the virus, and then. If you had everything, you know, kind of easily at hand, um, you know, through a through a good extended specimen network, you could then see perhaps where else this disease or similar diseases showed up through, you know, any number of samples that you had around the world, and start to understand it much more quickly, and then you know start to make moves to figure out, oh, you know, hey, this periodically shows up in, you know. Um, such and such primate, or um, you know, this appears to be something that you know has just made a jump from bats, and you can you can kind of look at things in that way that you wouldn't have access to if you didn't have those resources at hand. You know, that's true. And then and then an initial another aspect of that is let's say it's something that you don't recognize and and it doesn't seem to fit into place. One of the other things that we can do is building on what Gil was saying earlier is we can find out what gaps we have in our knowledge. And so when something novel comes along, we can begin to say, okay, we know the parameters around the edges. This is where we need to go look to try to figure out something that we really don't understand. And this is something that happens all the time in biodiversity questions. I think also one of the strengths is really that you have the specimen to go back to. And so you may have that data from somebody who did the genome or looked at the diseases, but now you want to figure out, well, how did that group of bats survive or how did that group of organisms survive? It's not ephemeral data, it's, it's something you can go back, validate, and then ask additional questions. And that ability to do iterative science is, is really the, one of the strongest parts about the fact that we actually have the specimen. Following up on Anna's point about expertise between collections, I think one of the things that the latest crisis, the COVID-19 crisis, has given us is an opportunity to build relationships with virologists and others with whom we might not work um, regularly. And I think building that, that network of expertise so that we can draw on those folks when needed is very important too. It's, it's also um, important to um, 
to point out that there's predictive value based on the collections we have we know we know where they occur we know the conditions under which they live and what associations they have now and then using modeling techniques and algorithms we can we can begin to predict where the next problems might come and that gives that especially combining that with our public health um, colleagues gives a very powerful tool for protecting against future pandemics of one sort or another. I think it's important to recognize as well that the problem with zoonotic diseases is that human civilizations are encroaching increasingly on um, those few remaining ecosystems. And so as human populations get closer and closer to um, to areas where there may be human pathogens that have never actually made the jump into humans, um, we, we run the risk of um, in increasing the incidence of these um, zoonotic diseases. We can um, look at places where human populations are getting particularly close to certain populations of, let's say, bats, which are known to harbor. Uh, large numbers of coronaviruses in particular. And so we can start to make, um, make these sorts of predictions about where outbreaks might occur, what types of outbreaks there might be, and a whole host of other sorts of incidents. Yeah, and that would certainly be something that will become only more valuable as people are living in, um, you know, conditions and closer to ecosystems that only make such transfers more likely over the passage of time. Uh, Another thing I was wondering is, you know, what collaborations and alliances uh, are not yet in place that would enable, you know, this sort of work? I, I, of course, funding would always be, you know, better if there were more of it. But, you know, what sort of relationships uh, between different, you know, researcher communities and scientific communities uh, would be helpful in, you know, making some of these things um, more likely to actually happen in the future were we to encounter such a, you know, a happening again at some point? Well, I, I like to use this analogy out of the, the COVID-19 example, which is that, that uh, the places that dealt with COVID-19 most effectively were places that had actually had SARS uh, uh, viral uh, pandemics before. So places like Singapore and South Korea. And so, you know, I, I like to use that as evidence that we can actually effectively learn from what's happened in the past and put things in place more effectively. And now that's a health example. But, you know, as Gil was talking about, this has opened up an opportunity to talk to, to the viral community um, and have the bio, biodiversity community talk to the have the viral community talk to the biodiversity community. And these are, you know, really important things. And, and I think a lot of times the two communities don't recognize how much one they have in common and how much their goals are in common, but two, how synergistic their, their, the information that they have is. So, you know, a, a good example within uh, a group like rhinolophus bats, which is one of the things that's hypothesized to be a, a source of, of the COVID, uh, the current pandemic is that the, the taxonomy of those bats has not worked out well. So if you're a virologist and you're trying to make an assumption about a Chinese horseshoe bat and whether or not it's the source, you actually want to one, have a voucher specimen so that you know that you can look at it. And then two, you want to go and talk to somebody who can tell you that that Chinese horseshoe bat is actually a Chinese horseshoe bat and not one of four or five other possibilities. And, and this is something that, that the two communities have to offer one another. And, and what's it like forging that sort of collaboration? You know, I, I, speaking only for the lay community, I, I think we have a tendency to have this notion that there is a science community uh, and that you're all in it. And, um, you know, that you all gather in, you know, one Discord chat room and, and all talk <laughs> together, uh, which is, of course, not the case. Uh, but what's it like putting together those relationships and, you know, finding out whom to talk with um, in those various settings? Well, no, that's a that's a very very interesting question to me. And I we um I was at a workshop just recently, um, for a parasite tracker program, um, problem this uh, folks are addressing. And at that meeting, there were a lot of entomologists, and there was also somebody from Walter Reed who heads up or works with the mosquito collections. And Walter Reed, you think would be at the Walter Reed Hospital, but it's not. I think it's at the Smithsonian or somewhere. And so. 
so it was it seemed to me that although most of the entomologists knew about the mosquito program they didn't really know about the mosquito program and the presentation was super helpful and i think that comes from the fact that the folks that work at walter reed they have a goal and a procedure they have a, some things they're trying to achieve and I don't know that they, we always see ourselves even in collections in the same community. And so figuring out how to find those folks like you suggest, I think is absolutely essential so that we do spend more time at professional meetings together. Right. We, we do love to meet and talk with one another, but there still remain silos. And there is a tendency for people who work in one particular type of collection or a particular type of organism to, you know, to, to flock together. I think the last decade, and due, due in very large part to the effort of iDigBio, we have a much more national, uh, robust collections community than we ever have, have had before. And so that's a huge step. But, you know, we actually don't know all the collections we have in this country. We don't have an email address for every single person who is responsible for a collection in this community. So we don't even really know the full scope of our own community, let alone all of the institutions, researchers who may be holding derivative data, those so-called extensions um, in collections from, from our specimens, nor do we fully know the full range of people who use our data. We don't have, it, we don't have the kind of tracking data um, about users that would let us know whether we're giving them what they need or whether there's something more we could be doing. This is also true of conservation biology, where we're not attending conferences of conservation biologists. They are not necessarily attending conferences of botanists and entomologists and others. And so somehow we've got to, got to break that down. I was interested in what Barbara said about um, sort of building collections community. When Attic Bio first started, we, we were doing workshops for people. And of course, we said, well, let's do one for the botanist. And then, well, now we got to do one for the entomologist. Now we need to do one for the folks who store things in wet collections. And everybody thought, well, that's fish. You know, and so after that third workshop, I had a fellow call me over and say, you missed the boat. I said, what do you mean? He said, I've got huge cabinets full of insects stored in fluid. And there, you didn't talk about that during this workshop. And following that, we decided we were on the wrong path. And we began to try to have cross domain workshops for most of what we did so that people from various reigns came and then as they shared what they were doing other domains could say hey we can use that technique ourselves or whatever research or digitization effort or storage effort that there might be yeah if i could just build on that i think one of the things we're seeing is the result of these kinds of efforts and 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 one of the i mean you can't get away from funding with respect to the differences in interacting with the health community versus uh the biodiversity community because we are funded for the most part in in very different ways uh at the government level and and even elsewhere but uh i think that that the capacity to to um Put these data sets together that's happening as a result of these projects like iDigBio is actually creating the synergies to do the kind of science that actually integrates across different types of, uh, of different groups. And so in a situation where in general over time we've all been experts in our individual areas, it's now much more possible to reach out to a collaborator who works on another group and say, hey, let's look at this. And, and NSF is, to their credit, has actually uh, been responsible for funding of this, some, a lot of this through this uh, ADBC program that allowed for digitization of things like parasites, for instance, which are being tied to their, to their hosts across these collection databases in ways that we think we'll learn a lot from. I think extended specimen network concept is pushing that even further so that the, the cross-fertilization between all of these domains is going to grow and be very helpful. So James, this, I have to do a shout out to this, but um, I'm Anna Monpoles, I'm at Central Michigan University and I'm PI on the Blue Project, which is looking at getting um, sort of these databases that are emerging, these biodiversity databases into our undergraduate curriculum. And so the reason I'm 
bringing this up right now is because, yes, there's the issue of trying to reintegrate biology is definitely being dealt with and we're looking at, and it's really critical, but we're also still training the next generation of scientists, and one of the ways to reach those future medical doctors and future conservation biologists with this data and the potential of this data is by introducing it early and often as a resource, just like all the other resources they've gotten used to. You know, they know about GenBank, they know, but are they, do, are they equipped with the skills and do they understand the data coming out of the biodiversity data sets in a way that they can apply it? And so I think that's one mechanism too that there's been some important energy behind as well. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I think that's a that's a fantastic segue. If you ever want to host a podcast, you certainly have the skills. Um, because I think I think that I think now is also a great time to talk about uh, you know education and the potential for uh, you know collections to act as you know a, a learning tool as well. Um, so you know, kind of what, what's that effort been like, and is it you know is is the is the notion to just ensure that you know you bring these uh, resources to bear. Uh, for people early on in their academic careers so that, you know, then they're aware of them and they know how to use them, um, regardless of, of where they end up? Or, or, we, or is this mostly exposure for, you know, um, you know, future collections folks? Or are we talking about, you know, those who might go into the biomedical sciences as well? That's, a, that's an excellent question. And I, so several years ago, I can't really remember, it might have been 2014, Pam and I were involved in something at the Florida Museum where we picked out 15 students that were biology students from universities in the state of Florida. These were not high school kids. These were kids who knew they were interested in biology. We brought all 15 of them to the University of Florida, to the Florida Museum for a couple days. They went through all kinds of things in the back of the museum. They extracted DNA. They did all kinds of good stuff. And it turned out that of those 15 kids, not one of them knew about collections in museums and the research that was going on with those collections. And I thought, man, we have a lot to do in undergraduate biology education for students to learn about collections. Yeah, absolutely. And this kind of almost gets back to that COVID discussion a little bit, but obviously everyone has had to make enormous changes to the way that they're teaching. And that has, you know, precluded a lot of undergraduate experiences doing research, et cetera, uh, that otherwise, you know, would be available but the collections are still there, and they are still accessible, uh, you know, through various digital means. So, what kinds of things have been going on that have allowed students to continue doing real work and real research and to learn in that fashion? Um, sure. Um, I'm Janice Crum. I'm at Widener University, and I am the PI on BCNet, which is Biological Collections in Ecology, in Ecology and Evolution um, Network. So. BCNet has recently received a rapid grant, and what we are doing is um, this summer, we're actually um, in the process of, with teams of both uh, collections professionals and undergraduate educators, um, designing and uh, creating the materials to be able to put course-based undergraduate research experiences using the digitized collections in place for fall semester and spring semester this year. Um, one of the great tragedies of COVID for as an undergraduate educator has been with the students not on campus and that being a question mark moving forward in the fall, um, research, research experiences have been lost in many cases or inaccessible. And being able to bring the research into the classroom, into their coursework, is a way to um, expand um, opportunities, especially for students who, for whatever reason, be it they can't get to campus because of health issues or or um, family issues or whatever, but to but to make the opportunities available for them to actually get research experience, and the collections are especially useful for this because. All of the students, whether they're at a community college or an R1 institution, they have access to those same resources. And so it levels the playing fields in ways that are not possible in some other fields. And so we're really excited about having, we've had a tremendous response um, from um, educators and collections professionals and, and enthusiasm about this 
Um, we were shooting for, I think, a dozen colleges, and it's going to be potentially much larger response than that. So uh, I'm a co-PI on a thematic collections network grant uh, through this ADBC program um, that's called OVER. And the goal of that project is to CT scan as much of vertebrate much of representation of vertebrate diversity as we can over the course of the project. And if you think about it, this was started because it's going to be a great research tool for everybody, but it's a, all the information is deposited virtually and accessible via a common data uh, portal called MorphoSource, which is also NSF funded and it's tied to real specimens. But the, the, but the, the benefit of having extended specimens like, these CT scan specimens available via MorphoSource is that they're accessible as teaching tools for anybody at any given time, provided they have the skills to, to, to work with the data. And, and now that's a steep learning curve. But I think one of the things we're finding as a community is we need to come up with the ways to make those tools more accessible to students. And, and that'll make accessible stuff remotely that, that we never even thought about even 10 years ago. And uh, this is, uh, I'm Liz Shea, and I'm the uh, curator of mollusks at the Delaware Museum of Natural History. And I've been working with Janice Crum and, and Carly Jordan on the BCNet um, activities. And uh, and one of the things, I'm not an educator. I mean, I am, you know, I, I love education and I participate whenever I can, but I don't have students of my own. I'm a, I fall squarely in the collections professional end of things. Um, but it, these sorts of collaborations are really so very useful, even for somebody like myself who doesn't have students, um, because it, it actually helps the collection. Not only does it meet the mission of our museum to explore and discover, um, it gets students involved in it, but it also improves the collection. And so really it's a win-win for us. Um, it's great to, to be interacting with the students, but also to get additional georeferencing done or to get students excited about taxonomy and systematics that's that has a follow-on effect that is um, only positive and so it's um, it's been a lot of fun getting involved in these, uh, in these sorts of things yeah and it's bringing not only the students into the collection but it's also bringing educators into the collection that otherwise had would never have imagined being able to access any of these resources um, I think we have a lot of work to do in um, spreading the word and making sure that educators that aren't just going to the the big um, the big scientific conferences know about this but um, at all levels of institutions are aware that it's 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 available and it is um, it's accessible and the tools to get them started in it are available and um, I think one of the great resources that um, also is out there is blue and maybe Anna can talk more about that. I'll, I'll give that to you. <laughs> Thank you, Janice. Um, we have like a mutual affection here for each other's projects. So um, the, the thing is, James, when they told me I was going to go to teaching online like tomorrow and all of my coursework needed to suddenly be accessible to my students who were going through unbelievable things many of them sharing um, a hot spot on their phone with their two siblings. This became a very, very different world as an educator. And I can say there was this sort of collective, oh my God, that was coming from the faculty at all these different institutions. And so people started mobilizing all of their resources, which was awesome. But then it was sort of a, a deluge of riches. Like, how do I kind of navigate this world of so many resources now. Now they weren't all equally accessible or available and of course the natural history collections ones are the very best ones. But how do we create that sort of pathway for educators to learn about these resources and feel comfortable within the classroom and teach them with any sort of fidelity? And so one of the things that Blue has worked towards is this idea of helping the educators get those core skills and then helping create the, the the sort of materials that allow that to happen a little easier with an easier transition. And so we did sort of a sprint to implementation in the um, spring where we did a really quick, let's just help teachers get this in the classroom right now because they didn't have a semester to develop it. And I can say that there are, you know, there's BCNet and what they're doing, which is great. There's also um, WeDigBio, 
that did a similar thing where they galvanized their resources and did a quick weeded bio. And then there's the Cubes Hub where they have made a centralized set of resources. So educators looking to do something that would be comparable to a lab experience but online, they sort of curated those resources and pulled them together. So I also see the education community doing a big shift of sharing, similar to the way the community does in, in nat um, natural history collections, kind of learning from each other and then trying to put best practices forward. And this is Liz again, and uh, one of the other things that happens, the um, museum has a lot of informal science education, and I know we're talking about undergraduates here, but all of the resources that are being developed for undergraduates then are available for other museum educators to, to look at and to distill down, and maybe they have to take it another step back. Um, but all that information is there. So there are really some um, long-term, they're far-reaching knockdown or, or um, downstream effects of all of the, the products that are being developed and put into either modules or entire courses and gathered up on, on CubesHub. Uh, as a curator, I can point, I can tell my public engagement person, you know, you need to go look here and you'll get a lot of great examples of how you can engage the public with, with our specimens. So it really, um, it ends up being kind of a shortcut for us. Um, so there's a, a lot of very, um, a lot of very big upsides to this. Just following up on the informal aspect, um, we have had a huge amount of interest in participatory uh, work with our collections. Um, there are websites where the public can go and help us transcribe data from images into a structured database. Notes for, Na Notes for Nature is one, but there's a whole host of other similar activities. And we, we were very, my institution is very active in putting our data out there because it actually helps us with the transcription. And we've, we, we can hardly keep up with the demand. And that creates, not only does it do work for us, it gives people an activity that maybe takes them a little bit away from the day-to-day -day challenges they're facing, but it opens up an opportunity to educate them about things about the collections, how they're used, and we supplement that with um, stories through a vehicle we call the hand lens, which talks about the collections, puts them in context of history, of biology, of world events sometimes. So um, there are great opportunities here for educating the general public, who hopefully then will be supporters of our collections endeavors. I'd like to add on to that. Um, I'm Carly Jordan. I'm at the George Washington University and I'm a co-PI for BCNet. Sort of back to a question you asked about 10 minutes ago, which was, are these collections useful for educating, you know, people that are going to use the collections or educating beyond that? And I, my background is strictly really in science education. I, I'm very new to the world of collections, but as a science educator, what I see in them is this tremendous opportunity to do lots of really meaningful, active engagement with students, no matter what their major is, right? So the big move in science education over the last 20 years has been about how do we engage undergraduates in real meaningful research? How do we engage them in active learning in the classroom? And now people are starting to think about if we're going to move online or for instructors that are already operating in this idea of a flipped model where they're asking students to do a lot of things on their own. Um, these resources really provide an opportunity to um, move courses effectively online, and then if they're not online, to really engage students with good data analysis and quantitative skills, regardless of their major. Yeah, and that raises a question for me, which is, you know, what kind of work are students or have students been doing uh, or will students do using collections? You know, what sort of research is at play there? We offered a course during the past spring that was on um, essentially the effects of climate change on Florida plants, and it was all based on using um, herbarium specimen data, digitized herbarium specimen data. And luckily, we had this set up as a totally computational course. So mid-semester, when everything had to go online, it was a fairly easy transition, even though we were working with freshmen. So the course uh, really emphasized um, getting students familiar with the collections, what information collections can provide, um, how you can download the collection information, analyze the collection information, model habitats, and then predict where those habitats um, are going to exist in the future. And then we could use that information. The students were doing all of this. 
um, they were able to um, make predictions about where certain species, um, endangered species in particular, um, might be able to find habitats, um, suitable habitat in the future. And of course, um, this taught them some pretty important lessons about the um, impact of climate change and uh, how we need to translate some of our science into science policy. So um, there are a lot of ways that we can use these uh, collections data in classes for freshmen through seniors and um, obviously into graduate education as well. So we've been um, doing this for several years at Central Michigan University in one of our core undergraduate courses. So this is for all majors, not just um, interested in conservation or organismal biology. So this is where we get the pre-meds. And we give them an opportunity to come up with an open-ended question that utilizes biodiversity data sets and they can take it wherever they want to go. We don't require it to necessarily be in a specific science area that it has to incorporate data and certain data skills. And so these students are so much more creative than me and have come up with some just really creative projects. So one group decided they wanted to figure out the best place to camp in Michigan. And so they looked up all sorts of data on the campsites and how many people visited them and where you'd find poison ivy. And we had to talk to them about the fact that just because there isn't a specimen collected from that site doesn't mean it's not there. But then they could look up, well, where are you likely to find poison ivy? And so they did this whole, and they did it with like, um, Boo Boo, who's the, the Yellowstone Park, the, I can't remember, like, hey, Boo Boo, that one. So they, they went... <laughs> Yogi Bear. So Yogi they did Bear. it with like it was Yogi Bear and they had picnic baskets like where were the best restaurants in the state and so they kind of brought all this in which was really to me a big win because they were using the data and they were answering this like kind of interesting question. Another one um, decided to look at where you could find the best Tom Turkey, the biggest Tom Turkey in the state with the highest likelihood of actually getting the turkey. So they had to find out licenses in the state then they had to, you know, who's getting licenses in what counties. They also wanted to look to make sure there weren't too many toxins in the water. So they looked at where the toxins might occur. And then they set it up like a Tinder date. So they presented it like a Tinder date, like you're going to swipe left or swipe right or however that works. And I'll admit to not knowing much. But it was a really interesting way of kind of bringing in all these data sets and using them to apply, again, to I would never have thought of that. So um, but that, again, is us looking at it at the introductory level um, you know, what Pam is doing, bringing them into really substantive resource, what I think BCNet is doing, is also like sort of that next step of saying, okay, let's look at how this is incorporated into research and hopefully making their minds think of new ways of approaching questions. We, we did a project at the New York Botanical Garden where, with high school students where we, um, we had them look at the distribution of rare species, these happen to be carnivorous plants, which are intrinsically interesting. We had them look at the specimens and geo-reference them, then enter the data into a simple GIS application and calculate the area of the species occurrence and see whether it felt, fell within or with outside the threshold of something that would be considered endangered by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. And then they considered other factors, how old the collections were, maybe the plants aren't there anymore. And then they each gave a, a presentation about their, their, their species, which they had adopted. So the, the thing is, with the right amount of, uh, of, of sort of prepping, um, you, you, can, you can take these lessons, everything from, you know, from high school students all the way up to you know, a graduate course. In this last spring at Widener University, um, Liz and I worked with students on um, carrier shells, which are marine gastropods that attach objects, including rocks and other shells and corals and things, to the outside of their own shells. And there's not much known is known about this group, um, but there are some really interesting hypotheses about why they do this. And our project did start with um, a combination of geo-referencing and, and data cleaning and trying to look at the distributions of these. Um, it included some morphological measurements, which then got scrapped with the, um, when they sent us all home. But because of the data available, we were able to pivot and, do, and, and move it to an entirely online project where the students have found some really interesting information about differences in depths between Different species and 
Um, and they really got a lot out of it. And none of these students are, they may be a division, but none of them have plans to become um, collections professionals. I know, I think we have at least a couple of pre-physical therapy in there, um, pre-med and maybe a couple going to graduate school, but it is making those connections with that wider scientific community. And those students, regardless of what career they go into, are going to hopefully remember that these resources are available if there is a question they need to answer. And I'll just follow up on that saying, this is the, the second time that we've taught this class, um, the Widener DMNH class. And the first time around, we had um, a student who knew he wanted to go on to graduate school, but he didn't know that he wanted to go on to graduate school and include natural history collections. And it was really only after that had happened that he'd had that kind of exposure that all of a sudden a whole new pile of information opened up in front of his eyes. And he thought, well, now wait a minute, I can incorporate this into into what I'm doing moving forward. And I think that that's just a, a terrific outcome. Absolutely. It sounds like the educational opportunities uh, that are, you know, embedded within this are incredible and, you know, being brought to bear very quickly. I, I think the last question, I, I noticed that uh, Joseph Cook's iPhone has joined us as well. Um, so I, I may address this to, to him first, but uh, I was hoping we could talk just a little bit about, um, you know, what the experience has been like, um, you know, in this era. We've, we've chatted a little bit about it of, of you know, kind of have to, having to rapidly uh, you know, switch over to online teaching and stuff like that. But, you know, how have, how has the experience been of, you know, jumping to this online world? And this can be specific to collections, but not necessarily so. I'm trying to get a little bit of a sampling of, you know, various practitioners and researchers, um, you know, experiences of, you know, how things have been for the past few months. So, um, you know, very broadly speaking, how's it been going? Uh, well, I think certain aspects of what museums are doing are, are have progressed very well. Uh, digitization efforts, for sure, I think has given us more time actually to, to focus on some of the issues that we didn't have time to when we were also taking uh, daily care of collections. But we haven't been in the museum. We're just beginning to open it up uh, other than, you know, checking on temperatures of freezers and so forth for four months. And so in some ways, there's been an ability to focus on certain things that we didn't have time to before, like even writing proposals. Um, but uh, we are behind now in terms of collection care for sure. Um, so I'll, I'll respond as well because I've had um, experiences from, and I'm sure others have as well, multiple different kind of directions. From the collections perspective, we've also been out for uh, since the middle of March. I guess nobody's been in except to, like you say, check freezers and make sure everything is rained on or anything along those lines. Um, uh, but our, in our case, the collections seem to have managed uh, without too much trouble. The challenge that we faced as a museum was the pivot to um, online activities for our education department and how difficult that was to take what is traditionally a very hands-on, always encouraged to be hands-on, person-to-person interaction and move that really rapidly onto um, an experience. And so that, that's been one of the bigger issues, I think, at our museum, how to, how to maintain the connection with your community and with the community of not just biologists, but also the local, local, uh, local folks. And uh, how do you keep that energy um, moving? And, uh, and we've all done, you know, we've been very scrappy about it and we've been able to, to do what we can and, and upload videos and all that, but that's definitely uh, one of the challenges we face. Well, I just think it's important to recognize that the public museums that depend on people coming to them for their for their bottom line are also struggling financially, and and there's mm -hmm. been some respite from some of the government programs, but but by and large, it's a it, there's a level of uh, attrition going on as as administrators look at budgets and and start working on reduction in force plans. And so those are just beginning to show up at some of the major natural history museums and, and botanical gardens across the country. And, you know, we're, everybody's doing what they can to protect the core mission of the institution. But, but if you lose too much of the, the 
groups of people that make a museum a museum, you're gonna you're gonna suffer. And so this is a difficult time financially for our institutions. And so we're all hoping we can get back on track, but that's going to depend on a lot of factors, such as when the public feels comfortable about coming out. And, and so there's a lot of scary uh, financial concerns right now, too. So James, I can speak a little bit to an educational institution. Um, and I'm at a, I have a small collection. My biggest issue there is the people trained to work in the collection graduated. So when I do get to repopulate, I will be training from the ground up versus the overlap that I had planned. Um, but also, this is really impacting graduate students um, and people at these institutions, graduate students who need to be doing research, can't get into the collections, or can't get into the field. And so they, they don't necessarily, can't roll it over to another year. I work with a federally listed species that's down to 200 individuals. We can't plan to get out in the field and see if it's still there. So there's a lot that's kind of in the sort of transition phase that seems to be impacting the students a great deal and kind of putting research in a weird place where you have to, I mean, every day I feel like I spend a bunch of energy pivoting to the newest bit of news. Like, okay, we might be able to go out next week. So we're arranging vehicles and hotels and then now we can't or we can go, but only one person can go in a vehicle. Um, and so that just doubled our travel costs. So there's just a lot of uncertainty in the science research world as well. I think the travel restrictions and the fact that uh, we don't all want to be sitting in um, rooms together at conferences um, <laughs> is all having a big impact as well. And, you know, we were discussing earlier some of the benefits of the online conferences, but one of the problems that we see is that societies also tend to not be able to um, uh, generate some of the revenue that helps support their programming throughout the rest of the year. And so um, we're seeing, um, particularly as um, organizations are maybe not charging registration, um, they're not making any money, and yet we want to be supporting our graduate students in research and in field work and all of these sorts of things into the future. So um, the support for professional organizations, I think, is something that, um, you know, we'll just have to be very careful uh, um, and monitor over the next few years. Yeah, you know, this year for the Digital Data Conference, we decided that um, you wanted to come, you could come, you can register. If you'd like to make a contribution, you can uh, come with a registration fee, and that contribution goes to sustaining the conference as an in-person conference in future years. And uh, I was pretty amazed. We, we have a sort of a bank with uh, NSCA and AIBS. Our money goes there that we can use later so that we can build a sustainable conference. And it turns out that we raised over $11,000 from people who just paid because they said, yeah, I want to contribute to keeping things going. And I thought, well, that's only about, that's about 50% of what we normally raise uh, for people when it's an in-person conference. Because I think we had more people coming, but not actually coming. You know, they were virtual and they wanted to participate in, in helping support uh, the notion. And so, you know, maybe we can get to a point if we you know, don't make it free, say folks, we, you know, We've got to keep this going somehow. There are a lot of people putting time into it. And how can we how can we keep it going? And out of your altruism and the goodness of your heart, help us out here. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it's certainly an important moment to support the institutions and organizations that you find valuable because I think as we've discussed today, um, they may have roles to play in, you know, uh, very important things in our lives. So a strong case for advocacy for funding and for, you know, doing everything that we can ourselves. Um on that note, I'd like to thank you all very much for joining me today. Um, I think this has been a successful podcast. We've only scratched the surface on many of the topics, of course. Um, but I think what we have covered, we've covered very well. And I appreciate your time and your uh, chatting with me today. So thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. Thanks, James. Bye. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.